I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, we're in for a really exciting show today. Our guest on the podcast is Sherry Botwin, and she is here to bring messages of hope for trauma survivors. This is an episode that needs to be heard. Sherry is one of the most beautiful souls I think I've had to date on the podcast and probably for a long time to come. I think it's very important that people understand that they are not necessarily having to take their trauma or their eating disorder and turn it into something as powerful as a healer or a therapist or a dietitian or a recovery coach. Every person's journey is unique and different. Wherever it brings you is exactly where you're supposed to be. Sherry does take her experience though and has applied it to her life and her therapeutic skills and her way of being a mother. I'm really excited and I'm really honored. I think you're all really going to enjoy this podcast. Thanks a lot. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I'm Karen Lewis, and I am thrilled to announce our guest for today. Sherry Botwin is a licensed clinical social worker. She's been in practice since 1997. So Sherry does a combination of working with eating disorders, trauma, so many other things. She's going to share so much with us on this episode. I'm really excited. Sherry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So glad to have you here. Sherry, can you tell the listeners a little bit about what you do, your practice? I really want to get into the book that you just wrote, which we'll talk about in a moment, but just give us a little a little rundown of who you are. So I got my master's in social work in 1996. Started working in the field of eating disorders. I worked at the Renfrew Center for a couple of years and then decided I needed to go out and do my own thing. I wanted to work with people who who were in recovery and I also wanted to continue to public speak and write. So I've been in private practice since 1997. And in the last 10 or so years, I've been really specifically focused in on people who are recovering from a multitude of traumas and also are struggling with different types of self-destructive 
coping strategies like eating disorders. So I'm seeing patients in my office and I'm also now serving as an advocate for sexual assault survivors. I'm going on air and doing all these amazing podcasts and giving commentary on different stories that are happening in the world and just trying to use all of the stuff I learned about my own recovery and my history of surviving abuse to get the message out, to help people, to offer resources. I I want people to know that they're not alone and I want people to know there are things that they can do to get help. So I'm sort of like on a mission, I guess. I want to help people and I want to spread the word. Yes, and it is a powerful, powerful mission. I'd love for you to talk for a moment. So forgive me for not remembering when this book recently came out, but you have a new book and it's called Thriving After Trauma, Stories of Living and Healing. I absolutely love that title. Can you share a little bit about that book? Sure. Actually, on um, Tuesday, it will be six months old. The book came out in November, so I plan to do a big celebration. Um, I've been wanting to write this book probably since around 2015. At that point, I was still pretty quiet about my own recovery and my own story. I got involved with the Cosby trial. I wrote some op-eds, and then the attorneys and some of the survivors started reaching out to me about what had happened to them. I ended up attending both trials, giving commentary, and I think it was in sitting in that courtroom and hearing their stories that I felt like it's it's time for me to start doing this as well, and not just about sexual assault, but all different types of trauma. Um, One of the things that I found frustrating at the end of my workday was I felt like there's so many amazing stories. There's so many messages of hope over time when I'm working with patients. And I really feel like, I really felt like I wanted to not just experience that in my office, but share that with people because I know as a trauma survivor, what it feels like to feel like it's me or feel like, There's nobody that's going to understand. So I started working on the book in 2015, and then I spent a couple of years just developing the book, meeting different people, trying to figure out what stories do I want to share. And then after that, once I signed with my book agent, we kind of searched for a publisher that was going to really help us to address many different aspects around trauma. The eating disorder piece is a big piece because I feel like I also want people to understand that when someone is struggling with something like an eating disorder, most of the time there's underlying history, there's trauma, there's loss, there's undigested grief. And I felt like I really wanted to make sure that not only did I write about that people survive trauma, but how people were using or are using their eating disorder to not address the feelings about whatever happened to them. And that's kind of how it happened. The The process of writing the book was, it was so fast. I started writing the book on November 1st and I finished on February 1st because I think I had been writing this book for so many years that once I sat down and started talking about different stories and writing some about my own story, it was like the words just poured out of me. It was, it was a, such an amazing experience. I think what is so, I I actually, I'm actually getting tears in my eyes right now 
because, well, first of all, you'll come to find out I'm a big crier. I cry all the time. It makes me feel good. But I cry when I feel really big emotion. And I'm feeling really big emotion right now because, first of all, you're writing that book so quickly meant you had to get that out. First, I, I want to say, especially with clients with eating disorders, one of the reasons why we often say journal journal, journal, get it out of your body. The other thing is I'm hearing this level of empathy that you wanted to connect with others. And I feel like this is why I do the work with eating disorders, not just because I like talking about eating disorders, but this level of empathy that is just always bubbling inside of me that's what I'm sensing from you right now. This you're not alone message that you want to give to people, especially around trauma. Yeah, I feel so heartfelt about it. And I feel like when it comes to surviving different experiences that leave us feeling unraveled and like our world is falling apart, I think that people who go through bad experiences and they bury all that pain and shame and grief. I feel like it's so important to let people know that it's in acknowledging and speaking and knowing about what happened to us and how it left us feeling then and how it affects us in our life now. That was one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book. And I think the other thing I realized, especially when I wrote the chapter on my own story, there's still stuff that I really struggle with. I, there were times when I was writing the chapter on my story and I literally felt like my, my seat was going backwards. That's how many emotions that I was having. And what I try to say to people is recovery is a lifelong journey. It's not a lifelong journey of suffering. It's a lifelong process of just making sense and working through maybe another aspect or another piece of whatever happened to us. And I felt like even in writing the book, I it, it helped me to realize that, that there's still stuff that I really struggle with. And there's still times when the eating disorder thoughts or urges come in. By sitting down and writing that book, I learned so much more about this is what I still need to work on. That's the difference about being recovered. You're not saying that a thought has never entered your mind again since being recovered, but your recovered healthy voice says that's not going to solve anything. That's not the way to move through this emotion. There's other ways of doing it. Right. And I think that the urges, what I say to people is rather than beat yourself up or get afraid that you're having urges, use it as information. Think about, okay, what if today is a day where I really don't feel like I have a, a lot of space for food? And I'm definitely noticing that during this quarantine and talking with patients and going on air, there are days when I still feel like maybe I just won't eat today. And then I ask myself, what, what are you trying, first of all, what are you trying to tell yourself, but what would that accomplish? Well, for me, it's about not wanting to have to sit and feel. And a lot of times for me, it's about the grief and the sadness, not so much the shame anymore, but I think that that's what I'm also trying to help people understand is that 
having urges or having thoughts about the eating disorder, it's a good thing. It's not good that you have the thoughts, but it's good that you're aware. If you're at the point where you can hear yourself saying, you know what, I don't really think I'm going to eat that meal today. Guess what? You're so far, you're so much further along than you realize because five or 10 years ago, or even 20 years ago for myself, I didn't even know I was having urges. I I don't even think I knew what that meant. Everything was so jumbled together and unconscious that it, I didn't even realize. So the fact that if you have the words and you hear yourself thinking, I want this or I don't want that, use it. Use it as information. Talk to your therapist. Talk to your friends. Go to your day program and talk about it. You'll, you'll learn something from it. Of course. And that's why I always say there's no emotion that we're not supposed to feel. That all of these emotions are signals telling us something. But if we use the eating disorder to push them down or purge them out or restrict them so we can't feel, then we're missing really, really important signals. What do you think, or was there a defining moment for you when you felt like you knew that you were recovered? When I got pregnant. Oh, say more. So I am a single choice mom. When I was 38, I decided I was still working through years of sexual abuse as a child. I was struggling with intimacy. I really wanted a family. At that point, I wasn't dating and I knew that I was getting a little bit older and I just decided I needed to start a family. And in order to start a family, I knew I was gonna need to carry a pregnancy. I had considered going the adoption route, but I really wanted to experience having a pregnancy. Part of what I wrote about in the book was that in my history of being abused, I was also pregnant several times and had five miscarriages during my abuse. So for me to be able to reclaim that part of my life and do something with it and turn it into something positive because that was the part of my history that really like still bothers me the most. And it's the part of my history that made me the most sick with my eating disorder. So I decided, you know, this is what I need to do. So once I found out I was pregnant and started going through the pregnancy and I could be in my body, experience memories of being pregnant as a teenager experience changes with my body, feel worried about what people were going to think, but not do anything about it except embrace the thoughts and know that this is how I know I'm recovered because I can be in this body and I can stay present and I can love my body. I can care for it. So I think it was really during that time that I knew. I think I'm sitting here. And again, I feel like I have tears welling up in my eyes. Your strength, and by the way, strength comes from you were, you know, I'm I'm assuming, I'm so sorry for using the word assuming. Strength does not mean that you worked through everything with a smile on your face and we're like, I'm strong and now I'm Listen to what you worked through, Sherry. And you're a strong survivor because you did it in spite of how hard it was going to be, right? Surviving trauma, surviving experiences like 
pregnancy as a teenager as a result of trauma, surviving eating disorders, and still looking inside and saying, but I'm still worth having a child, feeding myself properly, taking care of myself, is a message that I want everyone to hear. Again, not one day I bet was easy. I'm not invalidating what that struggle must have felt like. I can't even imagine. But I just, I'm, I'm really, really, I'm just, I have so much gratitude that I'm, I'm having you on this, on this podcast right now. And you know what? I really, I feel like there's so many people out there that I meet that have long histories of being with an eating disorder and have a multitude of traumas, many of which are abuse related. And they struggle to feel okay about wanting to have a family or wanting to carry a pregnancy. And I understand it. I understand there's so much fear behind being a parent after surviving abuse or trusting enough to be in a relationship with another person, even just the vulnerability of being pregnant, that in and of itself can be difficult for people. And what I want to say is once you step into it, once I started going through the pregnancy, it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. I think it was harder before I got pregnant to picture how in the world am I going to do this? How am I going to, how am I going to, even with my, my doctor, the doctor that treated me for the pregnancy, I was considered high risk because I had some underlying health issues. So I worked with one doctor through the whole course of my pregnancy, which happened to be a man. Even that was a celebration for me. I remember on my 16th week ultrasound, that was the day I found out I was having a boy. And I remember leaving there and thinking, I would marry somebody like him or he would be a great dad, like allowing myself to know there are really, there are good people out there. He didn't try to take advantage of me. He didn't judge me. He's not saying things that make me feel uncomfortable. I felt so safe in that room. So I celebrated all of those different feelings as I went through the pregnancy. And I also celebrated the feeling of having something inside of me that I didn't have full control over. I realized when I was pregnant, that I was not responsible for the miscarriages I had as a teenager, that it really wasn't my fault. And not only did I think about that, but then I took that thought and I transferred that into my abuse. It wasn't my fault that I was abused. I'm not the cause of that. And then I, then I took those thoughts and I thought about the eating disorder and thought, if it weren't for my eating disorder, I probably wouldn't be here right now. I have to stop you right here because as this is what I say to clients often, and forgive me for jumping in on such a powerful thing you were saying. One of the reasons why the eating disorder is so hard to give up is because it actually kept you alive. For me, it kept me alive emotionally. For others, it can actually keep them alive physically for, for many reasons. And so I am so happy that you said that on this podcast, that it actually served the purpose of helping you survive. To, otherwise, how could your beautiful little psyche have processed such trauma? You probably needed to shut down. I needed to shut down, yeah. Yeah, and I don't want to speak for you. So is there something you can say to that? 
about how the eating disorder helped? It took me a while to really understand all that, but I realized I have memories of being a kid and being a teenager and thinking about how I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be alive. This world would be so much better without me. And then the next thought I would have is, oh, I wonder if I'm going to have spaghetti for dinner tonight. Or I'm going to, I used to hop on my bike, my bicycle, and I don't know if 7-Elevens exist anymore in the world. I think some, but so this is what I used to do. I used to come home from school and would feel horrible, would be bullied by the kids, would be overwhelmed by school, would feel like I don't want to be here because I know as soon as my parents walk back in the house, it's not going to be safe. And then I would just hop on my bike and I would ride like two miles to the 7-Eleven and buy a whole bunch of candy. And it was those those moments that kept me going. Like I didn't have things to look forward to, but I had something to keep me going. And I used to feel so much shame about it. I couldn't even say the word food, candy. I couldn't say that stuff in therapy for years. Now, when I think about these memories of driving to the 7-Eleven or going from being suicidal to, well, but if I eat that for dinner, that would be really good. I think that's amazing. I think good for you, Sherry. Like, dude, listen, like you, you had a way in your brain of making food, your mom, your best friend, your therapist, your blanket, whatever it is that you needed. Even, even during my pregnancies, I struggled so much because I'm gaining weight and I'm knowing something's not right. And I'm trying to do things to not be pregnant. So I'm restricting. When I first realized that it was heartbreaking for me. I mean, it, it, it was devastating. But now when I think about it, I think, you know what, that was really actually pretty creative to try and, and figure out how can I be pregnant and not know I'm pregnant. I no longer feel like I did anything wrong or I'm a horrible person. I think you, you're a fighter. You were doing what you needed to do, like you said, to survive things that I, there was no way I was going to be able to know this stuff and process it. And even though I had those thoughts, like, I wonder if I'm pregnant, I would quickly go from that to how can I lose weight or when can I work out again? And again, I don't want people to live their lives like this. And I would never want to go back to that spot. But at the time, that's what I needed to do. I didn't want to die. I didn't want to, I didn't want to end my life. I had things I needed and wanted to do. Even at like the age of 10, I used to fantasize about standing on buildings and just feeling like people would listen to me. I still remember as I wrote the book, I have that image of me standing there thinking that at 10. Um, and, and I think my brain and my heart had this, this, this drive, this fight. I didn't know why then, but I knew something was going to be happening in my life. I knew there was going to be something good. And I used food and my eating disorder to get to that spot where I could break free from it and then actually take these different images and make them real. What motivated you then to recover? If we're looking at the at food, restricting whatever it is, as the protector of all this bad stuff around you, what gave you, I'm going to say courage, because recovery takes courage, I think. What gave you the courage to start the healing process? For me, I think, again, it's the, it was the drive to talk to other people and help them. It was my sort of innate um, passion or 
dream of being able to sit with other people who could hear me and understand me and not judge me and then to take those connections and use them to help others. I don't know why I'm thinking in my head, the wounded healer. Like that's just all I keep hearing. Like you are the wounded healer. I think a lot of us are, a lot of therapists. Um, I think whether you work with eating disorders, trauma, uh, whatever, personality disorders, I think a lot of us do come from being wounded healers. I think that the people that go into this field that have an extensive history or something that happened to be able to take our experiences and bring it into our work. I think that there's something so powerful about that and brave. And I think that we have a way of understanding people's pain, even if we we can't fully relate to what happened to them. I think that that's the kind of, if you're looking for a therapist or you're trying to figure out what would be the right kind of therapist, I think for people like us who have so many different things behind our story, that's what you want to look for. And that's what I looked for when I was looking for a therapist. I think, first of all, it's impossible for a therapist to have experienced everything that any of our clients walk through the door with because we would not be able to exist because there is so much. I think, again, there's something, though, about what all of us have experienced in the past that allows us to tap into that compassion, sympathy, empathy, non-judgment. About, I say to my clients when they start, you know, judging their own thoughts, there's no judgment. Doesn't matter. It's what you're thinking. Let's just talk about it. And I think for me, that came from, I was always afraid of being judged for my thoughts. And at times I was. And so I learned to keep quiet. And so I never, ever want another client to feel silenced or anybody. What do you think was the hardest thought for you to let go of? I think I really struggle with accepting that I would stay in a family where I was abused until my early 20s. I don't know if it's a thought. It's more just part of my story. I used to say over and over, I must have been okay with this, or I must have wanted this, or I would have left sooner. It took me, I mean, I'm going to be 50 next uh, in November. It took me it took me a long time to really just say to myself, it doesn't matter that you were in a grown body or that you were starting to become an adult. You were in a situation where you knew no different and you needed your parents in different ways. I needed to be independent and have a life for myself and to be able to leave a life of abuse. A lot of people don't understand this. They say, a lot of people used to say to me, this is what I struggle with the most. They would say, why did you stay? Why didn't you leave? Why didn't you tell somebody? It's all I knew. It was what I knew. I thought it was my fault. And I didn't want to get other people in trouble. I didn't want to hurt other people. So I think it's, that's the piece that I struggle with the most. Now that I'm approaching 50 and I'm working with a couple people right now who are in their late 20s and just starting to realize and come to terms with their own history, 
of having an eating disorder and being abused. I can see now that at 21 or 19, I was still a kid. I was not a grown up, and I was not in a place where I was going to be able to make it out there in the real world. If I had left, I think I would have just attracted to more abusers because I don't know any different. And I think that's that's also an important part. I want to make sure listeners heard your last last statement because I spoke over you, that you didn't know any different. I also think with trauma, it feels, I don't know if I want to use the word safer. I'm, I'm going to use that for the, for the sake of this conversation. It feels safer sometimes to blame yourself because if you blame others, then that means there's a potential that trauma can happen anytime, anywhere from anyone. Or if you blame others, and like you said, they are your parents, your support, your, the roof over your head. How are you going to live in this life? So blaming self is another survival technique, I think. And I think it's a part of why people stay stuck in their eating disorder. It's hard to break free from an eating disorder when you feel like you can't hold someone else accountable. People with eating disorders struggle so much with guilt and shame and fear about hurting other people that they stay in the eating disorder as a way to stay. It's like it keeps them stuck in the shame. And again, nobody does this on purpose. It's not a conscious decision that anybody makes. And I think too, in order to be able to hold others accountable, then you have to feel stuff that you don't want to feel. You don't want to be devastated. You don't want to feel like you're going to a funeral every day. You don't want to think that the people that are supposed to love you are the ones that are actually hurting you. It's easier. And like you said, it's safer. It's more familiar. It's comfortable even though it's uncomfortable to hate yourself, it's much less of a risk. And I think a lot of times people with eating disorders, they've lost their voice. Part of what I think of when I think of an eating disorder is it's another way to make ourselves silent. If we eat our feelings away, if we obsess about food, if we overexercise, any words that I may or may not have, they're going to go away because I'm so entrenched in the symptom. And if I lose my words, I can't speak. Yes. Do you find yourself getting triggered doing trauma work, whether it's from your own trauma or triggered with eating disorder thoughts? Definitely both. And what I would say to people working in the field is it's so important to stay in therapy. If you're a survivor or have a supervisor supervision group, I think at this point, I would say I'm not as triggered because I've been doing it now for like 25 years. I think there are times when I'm triggered and I don't even realize it. So I work really hard to find ways to acknowledge my feelings. Part of why I love coming on these shows is because it's an opportunity for actually me to process as well. Part of why I wrote the book was because I wanted to process my own feelings. A lot of what I do in the book is I go back and forth from telling stories of patients to talking about what I thought or felt about what the person said. And oftentimes in the book, I would talk about how I was triggered by what this person said, or it reminded me of something about myself when this person said this. And I think rather rather than judge myself or feel bad about that, I think 
there's nothing wrong with that. I just, we need to practice self-care. We absolutely need to give ourselves a lot of attention and support when you're doing this work. And I think people who don't understand therapy might say to me, well, how do you, how can you do that work? Isn't that, doesn't that upset you? Don't you get depressed? And I say, it's so uplifting. It's so amazing. And there are times when I get stuck in my own crap, but then I go to work and I talk to somebody and I think, oh my gosh, like I went from feeling kind of depressed to wanting to sort of jump around my house and celebrate. So I feel grateful for the work. And when I'm triggered, I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think, okay, well, you're triggered because there's something you're trying to figure out. There's something you're still working through. Just use it. Go to your therapist, go to your friends, talk with your colleagues. I have a few colleagues that are more like, I call them guardian angels because they've been with me since I started dealing with my abuse. Um, sometimes I reach out to them and I say, I don't know what to do. I'm feeling all kinds of stuff. So I think it's normal and it's okay to be triggered. And it makes us better therapists when we can face our triggers. Well, again, that's being recovered. You feel an emotion and you reach out for support as opposed to reaching towards a behavior. It's exactly the difference. So again, it's not that you don't feel an emotion. It's that you acknowledge it and say, what is the best way to navigate through this emotion? Oh, I know. I'm going to call one of my guardian angels because that's what I need right now. I don't need binge food or laxatives or exercise because that's just going to pause the emotion and then it's going to come back. Hence why we constantly needed in our eating disorders more and more behaviors because then the feeling comes back and you need another behavior, and then the feeling comes back. So reaching out. I think too, sometimes also being present. I notice as a parent, and I don't do this intentionally, but on the days when I'm having a harder time, I notice that I'll watch things that my little guy's doing. Something as simple as I'll watch him kind of skipping down the street as he's going to the basketball courts, or He's all like busting out into all these different types of dance moves and I'll look at his face and that the sort of the sparkles in his eyes and think that's so much more um, comforting and healing than thinking, what can I restrict tonight? So I, I always say to people, make sure you really connect with things that offer you love and support pets, kids art, singing, yoga, whatever it is. Oftentimes when I think of being a mom, I think of it sort of as like uh, I'm giving myself a huge hug just by watching the life of an innocent child unfold in front of me. So if you can find ways to do that, because it doesn't have to be through your kids, it can be through anything that you feel heartfelt and passionate about. That's what's going to really keep you from slipping back into the, the behaviors that's also living in your values as opposed to living in your eating disorder. You value your son. You value his innocence. You value that beautiful face that he has. So if you lean towards that, then that's where your thoughts and energy are going to go to. If you go against your value system, because in essence, there's nothing that at least that I valued 
that I actually found in my eating disorder behaviors. So every time I did a behavior, I was pulling farther away from myself, which made me feel more disconnected, which again made me need more behaviors. I love that that what you're talking about is almost the simplicity of life. And I'm, by the way, I'm not saying that your child is something that is a simple thing, but just that that level of it doesn't have to be something grand. People say to me all the time, what what was it that made you recover? I'm like, mm, do you have a few hours? Because it's like everything from somebody's smile to, you know, the way I, I whatever it is. But people think it's going to have to be something really big. And it's not. It is not. I think, again, too, it can be like just the world that we live in. I know some people, when they're having a hard time, they just go out in the woods and go for a hike. And they find the fulfillment that they're looking for through what they see or what they hear. So even just grabbing a hold of things that are going to offer different types of stimulation that are about comfort and peace, those things can be very, and again, it can be simple, but yet it's so important and it's so helpful. And this is where clients get very upset when I use the word choice. I will never say you had a choice in your eating disorder. I don't feel like I had a choice. I I never woke up one morning and was like, I think today I'm going to start an eating disorder. But what I did have is choices, how I wanted to navigate through each day, each hour, each moment. And again, this is being recovered. What choices do you make? I'll tell you a little secret, which now everyone's going to know. I... Since the pandemic has started, um, I am not a computer person. So now here I am on the computer all day trying to connect with my clients who I adore and want nothing more than to see them in person, but I can't. So I find I'm a little unmotivated, like the first like half an hour before I'm about to start the day. So if I were still in my eating disorder, I would choose probably to use a behavior. So here's the funny thing for any of you that know me. I choose to put on Pandora and I put it on 80s music because I am 50. So I am. I went through high school during the 80s and I dance and I sing, by the way, at the top of my lungs. I'm sure everybody in my building... It's like, oh, here she goes again. She's getting ready for her day. But that's the choice I make to change my energy because I'm feeling flat in the pandemic. I'm feeling it in my body. My eyes feel it. I feel very flat and muted. I need something to shift my energy and pull me out of that. There is never a behavior that is going to do it. It's me singing at the top of my lungs to some 80s song from like Duran Duran. And there it is. That's the secret to recovery, everyone. No, just kidding. <laughs> but that's where you have a choice. How do you want to bring yourself out of energy that is really painful or could go in a, in a different direction? So that's for some reason something that I was thinking of. The other thing that I thought about when you said people, and people say this to me all the time, like, how do you sit and listen to people talking 
all day long about really difficult stuff. Don't you just feel so drained at the end of the day? And you had said earlier in the podcast about feeling silenced in your eating disorder. And I don't think that that was just silenced by words, but even for emotions. And what gives me, what fills me up so much is seeing a client. Did I say client? I meant to say client cry. That's why I use client cry because that's a healthy expression of emotion. They're crying instead of binging and purging. They're talking about something that's painful instead of leaving my office and restricting for the rest of the day. They're actually using these emotions in a positive way. And, and it actually, because I, nobody silenced me in my eating disorder. I silenced myself. Nobody silenced my emotions. I silenced myself. So for people, I also love it when my clients laugh. Every once in a while, we'll just have like really silly sessions where I don't even know if you could call it therapy, but that's what they needed in the moment. And nobody even lets them, or they don't even allow themselves to feel good energy. So laughter, all of that. That's why I think what we do is so rewarding and so life-filling for me. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that or... Oh, yeah. I feel like for all the conversations I have with people that are about pain and suffering and grief, we have equal amount of conversations about hope and joy and life. I, I mean, I feel like there are always some sessions that just are gut-wrenching. But then as you go through the work with different people and you watch the progression and you see the things people are reclaiming or are having now that they never thought they could have, there's nothing at all depressing about that. I think it's a wonderful thing. And I think trauma survivors and people with eating disorders are very determined, I think resilient people with, and they bring a ton of energy to the work. And I think when they're working with people like you and myself, who also have been down this road, they, they feed off of that. They can feel that energy from us, even if we're not actually talking about ourselves. So I feel like it's not depressing. It can be stressful. It can be hard, but the moments of laughter, the moments of making a, like a light bulb connection, the, um, the joy I feel when somebody tells me that she's moving in with her boyfriend after she left an abuser who was, was horrible for so many years. How is that depressing? It's not, it's wonderful. It is so, it is, it is beautiful to witness. And what I often say to clients is you're the one who did this work. I helped guide you. I gave you a safe place, a space safe to work through it. But it's that resilience. It, that's what gets them there. And watching a client blossom into that is powerful. So powerful. What was something, you know, I, I don't know if it's something in reference to the trauma or something from your eating disorder, but what took the longest for you to understand or accept about yourself? I think what took me the longest is how deep, how, how unconscious and deep I became with the, the trauma. Like, how did I 
go about my life for so many years and act like everything was okay when it wasn't. I really, it took me such a long time to understand how that worked. And because I don't remember some of that, it was also at times hard for me to even believe that these things could have actually happened to me because I don't have the proof. So I think that's the piece. I don't struggle with that anymore because again, I can understand now at almost 50 that I was surviving and that I was trying to stay alive and that people do this when they're under horrible conditions. I've talked to so many other trauma survivors who've also done similar things with their histories that it almost now it makes sense, but it took me, it just took me the longest time to understand how could I, I would go into therapy and tell my therapist I had a great family. Like, and sometimes I still think about it. I would talk to my friends and be like, yeah, I'm like best friends with my mom, my dad, you know, he's never home, but um, that's so not what it was. Were there things that were good? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't all bad, but I had a, I had a story that I created, but it was the story that I created that helped me to leave. But that's, that took me the longest to understand. But what do you mean? I want to take a step back. What do you mean when you say it was a narrative that you created that helped you leave? That's what I'm not sure I followed. So I think it's hard for me to explain this, but by convincing myself that what was happening wasn't happening, when I got to the point where I was ready to know, that's what helped me to leave because it made sense to me. So when you stopped creating that narrative, which, by the way, kept you as safe as you could be given the situation, right? Exactly. And I think with an eating disorder, it's the same thing. If you think about somebody with anorexia or bulimia or binge eating and they convince themselves, I don't have an eating disorder. Why are people saying that I need to go to therapy? You get in this this denial that operates in our brains is partly, again, protecting us from knowing the truth. In order to say goodbye to your eating disorder, you need to know that you had one. So you have to go from being in denial to knowing to grieving, accepting and letting go, which is what I had to do with my abuse. I had to be ready to let go of the fantasy or the wish of what I thought it was in order to leave. I don't think people understand that part, the grief. People would say, why would you grieve something that was abusive? Or why would you grieve getting rid of an eating disorder? I say to clients, you're going to have to grieve that you thought this eating disorder was going to provide something. And now you know the truth. It's never going to happen. And there's grief involved in that you had to grieve the realization that the narrative you made up was not real. And there's so much grief involved in that. It's almost like you have to grieve for the wish for what you thought it was. It's devastating to come to terms with the thing that I thought was helping me was actually hurting me, especially if you're attached to it. The thing I understand about eating disorders is we become very attached to it, just like We can become attached to abusers or people who aren't good for us. Even if it's not a good thing, there's still a level of comfort and security that 
in order to let go of it, you have to be able to let go of those things that you're getting from it. And I think, again, it's very, some of this might be hard for people to understand, but holding on to the hope and the wish is some of what keeps people, like you're saying, it's some of what keeps us alive. But you have to be at a point where you're ready to say, I thought that that my eating disorder was my best friend, but what I'm realizing is it's actually more like an enemy because look at what it's doing to hurt me. We can't let go of something if we think that it's helping us. And eating disorders, we convince ourselves, if I do these things to myself, I'll be better at this, or I'll be more of that, or people will more like me more, or I'll have more boyfriends. We convince ourselves of all these sort of fantasies that aren't, aren't going to come true, because they're not true. Sherry, your words and your message is so important. Can you please tell everybody, you and I were talking at the very beginning before we got on about where to get your book, how to get a discount. I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking, I can't believe how eloquent you are about all of this. Please tell the listeners the title again, where they can get it, the discount code that they can get it because this is this is really important. Oh, thank you. And I just want to say too, in the book, there's so many different stories of survival, different types of eating disorders, different types of trauma. So I think people will, even if they can't relate to all of the stories, I think that people relate to a lot of the stories. Um, the book is called Thriving After Trauma, Stories of Living and Healing. You can get it anywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target. It's in audio, it's in ebook, and it's right now it's only in hardcover. It hasn't released in softcover yet. If you want to purchase the book and not pay full price, you can go to my publisher's website, which is www.roman.com. Just click under the search button for Sherry Botwin. You'll see the, the beautiful blue cover. And then when you go to checkout, all you need to do is type in the discount code, which is RLFAND30. As long as you live in the United States, you can get the 30% off for either the hardcover or the ebook. Amazing. I'm going to ask a question, and I, I hope this actually doesn't come off in an in a insulting way. Is there anything listeners should know? about the book with regards to, are there things that if they're in a certain part of their trauma work, this might not be, this might be too triggering, this might be perfect for them during that time. I want to make sure, and, and Sherry, I hope you're okay with me asking, because I am sure that you would write a book that is very, you know, acceptable or for everybody, but I, I feel obligated to ask, is there any sort of trigger warning that we should let listeners know? No, I, I think it's amazing that you're asking that. I was very careful when I wrote the book to not go into details about people's trauma, but rather to focus on their feelings and their thoughts as it was happening, after it was happening, as they go through the therapy. The other thing I did at the end of each chapter is I wrote down a whole bunch of coping strategies, healing strategies. So there's a whole section on shame. There's a section on reclaiming different parts of your life. 
I, I felt that was so important. So even if you're someone that can't really read some of the stories because you're getting sad or it's hitting buttons, you can just go to the end of the chapter. I put down, I, I offered a lot of different types of exercises and things people can do, whether they're in therapy or they're in a support group, or even if they're just working through their issues with friends. But I was very mindful of how difficult it was to write the book and thought, well, if it's difficult to write the book, you've got to think about the reader. And it was in picturing the reader that helped me to be able to share stories without being specific about things that aren't necessary to talk about in a book that are just going to trigger people. Beautiful. I also think it's important for people to know, I know there's a lot of people that are afraid to do trauma work because their fear is that they're going to have to go into details and, you know, moment by moment. That's not really trauma work. Trauma work is more about what meaning do you make of the trauma that happened, of who you are now as a result of it, what choices you do or do not have in life. And correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're so right. I think I was just talking to somebody about this today. She's really struggling with speaking about her story without going into specifics and details. She feels like in order to be heard, she has to relive and recount all the sort of horrific things that happened to her. And I keep saying to her and I say to people, it's more about how it affected you. It's more about how it left you feeling and what it means to you now. Why now are you doing this work? Why now? And again, for her, she's doing the work because she wants to have a family. She's married. She's got a million animals living in her house. She's a, an amazing person. She wants to have a, she wants to have a pregnancy and she wants to have kids. So I really just want to say to people, trauma work is not about re-experiencing. It's about finding our voice. It's about speaking. It's about feeling heard. It's about learning how to live with, not get over what happened to me. How do I live with what happened to me? And it's about reclaiming. It's about saying, these are the things that I haven't been able to do because of what happened to me versus I have to prove to my therapist that this is what really happened to me. So I try in the book to talk about that. And I think a lot of times people with eating disorders struggle with this because they tend to be so hard on themselves and there's all that self-hatred, which leads to find, like doing different things during their recovery that will reenact some of that. So it's really important to keep in mind, you want to work with a therapist that's going to help guide you away from the recreating and the re-traumatizing of yourself and sit with somebody or sit with other people that can hear you and know who you are and accept you and for you to find a way to know and accept and believe yourself so that you can move on with your life as you work through what happened in the past. Sherry, you are a beautiful, beautiful soul. I I cannot even tell you how, just how I, I, for some reason, the word empowering is coming to me right now. How empowering right? This podcast has, has been the, your voice, the voice that you're trying to say to others, use your voice. It has just been beautiful. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we end? Or is there anything that I, I didn't ask, which by the way, I do want to let listeners know 
that I do send out a questionnaire for all guests before they come on this podcast. And there's about 20 questions and they're divided up into categories. And I ask them to pick three from each category. Sherry is so dedicated, passionate, beautiful, amazing. In the very first section, she picked every single question. And I was like, wait a minute. You only get three, Sherry. You only get three. But I loved it. I was looking over the paperwork and I thought, God, what a passionate human being. Just three. It's all good. But Sherry, thank you. Let me let me close by asking a question um, not related to trauma and not related to eating disorders. If somebody was going to write something about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? Persistent uh, warrior, motivated person who has more energy than anybody I have ever met. (laughs) Totally matches the person who picked every single question on the questionnaire sheet. Love it. Sherry, again, thank you so, so much. Your your story is powerful. Your voice is powerful. And I just want to thank you for being part of this podcast. And thank you so much for having me and doing this amazing work that you're doing. You're helping so many people by doing this podcast. And I think it's amazing. So keep at it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sherry. All right, everyone. So thank you so much for tuning in for another powerful week of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to, I was going to say seeing you all next week, but uh, speaking to all of you and uh, stay safe during COVID-19 and pick up Sherry's book. And thank you all for listening. Take care. Bye-bye. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.